In this episode, we chat to the normless Liz Marin, a very accomplished professional in the world of health sciences. During her career, she's become a highly experienced sports scientist, nutritionist, strength and conditioning coach, and high-performance coach. Her journey has taken her from her days at the New South Wales and Sydney Academies of Sport, working with incredible athletes across a range of sports, including, quite astonishingly, a blind downhill skier, to her time at the NRL clubs Manly Ringer Seagulls and Canterbury Bulldogs, to her time at Rugby Australia. Liz has become a role model for many men and women in her field, with her dedication, work ethic and determination in striving for success, making her one of the most respected sports scientists in the country. We specifically chat to Liz in this episode about being a trailblazer for women in what was originally a male-dominated field, her significant influence on bringing in and developing GPS technology in Australian professional sports, her research and work around sleep in sports, and her vast knowledge on nutrition and managing top-level athletes, to currently teaching the next generation of sports scientists and ensuring a bright future for Australian sports. You're listening to Normless, a podcast hosted by Hayden Kelly and Jack Hasler. Thanks for joining us, Liz. Now, you've been a role model for all people wanting to get involved in the sports science field and also for those who are already within it. But more specifically for women, you have been a trailblazer. When we spoke the other day, you mentioned that you and your friend were amongst the only, or rather, the only women in your group when you started in the industry. Firstly, what are some of the lessons you've learned in being a minority in what was originally a male-dominated field? And secondly, what are some advice you have for women wanting to follow in your footsteps, such as overcoming barriers that they may face? Uh, yeah, so I, I guess when I first started, there wasn't too many of us women in the industry. And, and these days, there's uh, a lot more opportunities available uh, for us to work in the industry. Uh, but I guess the main challenges that most of us or I've experienced is, is just working in the environment and making sure that not to take things too personally. So it's a type of industry where um, everything's about performance and, and, and communication and different methods that people communicate can be misunderstood. And so you just need to learn to not uh, take it on personally. Um, that's probably my main thing I tell uh, uh, other females going into the industry, but then also to never put yourself in environments or situations where uh, you can be uncomfortable. So uh, most most of the time these days um, it's, there's a lot more uh, gone into accepting both genders in, in this type of industry. Um, so whereas back in my day, it was just, it was just new to have a girl um, around in the change rooms. Um, whereas these days it's more acceptable and 
the players are a lot more respectful and aware of their own boundaries. Um, but I guess I would just say to take every opportunity, but then also uh, respect your own career path and what you want to get out of it um, and just always be open to discussing things with your um, with the colleagues that you work with and build a good uh, good relationship with the colleagues that you do have that you can be able to discuss with them anything that may come up or anything that may uh, make you feel uncomfortable. Uh, but uh, I find that these days it's a lot more easier to, to be able to work in those types of environments. Yeah, I think it's great feedback. It is not only for women if they're listening that are trying to get into the high-performance sport setting, but, you know, anyone who's trying to get into this, you know, sp- sports science sort of realm, I guess, in like high-performance sport. And one of the main achievements in your career, which has given you such a great reputation and leaves no doubt why you're such a trailblazer for women in this field, is your involvement in the introduction and development of GPS technology in Australian sport. Can you take us through where this began, how this technology works, and how you've seen the technology change the landscape of sport in this country? Yeah, so GPS was only really starting off during that time. I think there was a number of years before I came on board, but GPS back then would take quite a long time to analyse. So you, the GPS unit was a lot bigger than what it is currently now. Um, the, they weren't allowed to be used in games and it was actually DES that assisted that process of getting it um, put through so they could be used in games. And so there was the whole organisation of what type of bibs would be used And so we were involved in designing the initial bib that would hold the GPS um, for training and then for games. But now for games, they just put it in the jerseys. Um, So all of that started off back then. And then also the analysis of the data. So uh, we would collect the data through the GPS and then download it. Downloading back then would take up to two hours to do. Whereas like now you you press a button and it's all down in five minutes. Yeah, so, and then the data uh, analysis back then meant that we had to create our own uh, Excel worksheets with macros to analyse the data. So now the software all does it for you. Um, whereas back then it was up to us to do it. So that was one of my main roles that they hired me for was to analyse the data and that would take me hours each day to do. And then it was just working with GP Sports to try and improve their product and uh, develop newer systems to help um, make the process a lot better. So uh, at the moment, you know, it's incredible how much it has improved compared to when I first started. And then also the, I guess, the um, GPS system of how it's all collected. Um, So right now you've only got one, I guess, stand on the side of the field, Um, whereas now those types of aerials are now implemented into stadiums. And that was also another thing that we helped to develop. So we had um, certain 
receivers on uh, the light posts in at, at the academy, and so those were like the initial things that now exist in stadiums um, around the world, and, and so all of that has now come into fruition, and GPS uh, like GPS um, technology has just uh, improved so much over the years. But it was just those initial years that that were tough because I did have to spend hours upon hours. Uh, downloading and assessing data but now it's just so much simpler but then it allows you more time to actually use your sports science knowledge to analyze the data and provide more um, I guess more practical and implementation from the data. Yeah I was gonna say Liz it's amazing how you you've seen that paradigm shift and how you know you've been there from the start and you've seen how how this technology's evolved and you know not just the outputs that you get from the data like you were talking about with des and showing the athletes but also you know doing that input yourself like without bringing this back to me because obviously it's a podcast about you but in my own study at the moment we're looking at hopkins spreadsheets and all the data's there you know so you just pop all your numbers in mm -hmm. and then you get the outputs on you know the reliability or the validity of the data and you know the group means and the likelihood of you know increased strength or weakness and increased speed or um, reduced speed of a, of a given data set. Do you think one did that in, that obviously improved your you know professional skills and your ability to you know understand the data, not just put the numbers in, but maybe for our listeners, what sort of inputs were you looking at? So like, what sort of um, metrics were you? getting from your athletes that you were testing on? Oh, um, I guess it depends. Like from each year to year, it would progress and develop so quickly. So obviously initially you're just getting the most basic data out um, and it was just focusing on different speeds and, and, and the volume that we were uh, catering for in our sessions because that was probably one thing that I had to really be careful with with our athletes was the volume that they were training at um, and then making because uh, working with Des like obviously he's got a lot that he wants to achieve in a session but uh, he definitely needs someone to tell him like, when when is enough because we don't want to overtrain our athletes and so that's where um, my main focus was, was giving that feedback and making sure that the, the players weren't doing too much leading up to a game. But then as the technology improved, I was able to make things more specific to uh, the actions of a rugby league game. So metres per minute became um, more important. So we would be replicating the speed of the game um, towards my the, the last couple of years that I worked with NRL. So making sure that uh, as the game progressed and got faster, because it did definitely get faster over the years, so did we need to do that for our training sessions. But to a point that we weren't creating scenarios that would increase the risk of injury, because obviously you don't want to have 
two or three sessions of game-paced um, uh, drills because that could cause injury but then trying to find a happy medium as to how much can we push the athletes before a game um, because they obviously need to train at that game pace level, but then managing that so there was uh, minimal risk of injury. But at the start, it was definitely more basic uh, calculations and uh, volume has always been the main thing when working um, with NRL, just making sure that we weren't overdoing it. Right, and, and, and as you said, uh, you've noticed that the speed was one of the main things that changed um, over um, your years at, at the NRL. What other elements did you see through what the data was showing um, of how the game evolved since you um, first started the Seagulls in 2007? Yeah, so d definitely the pace of the game has increased. Uh, the tackles were so much were getting harder and harder. So, right. um, and so that's why I guess there is certain types of injuries that occur, um, and then having to also look at how can you combine your GPS data with other data that you collect. So, uh, as the game got faster and the tackles became a lot more challenging. There's obviously increased risk of injury, but then there's also other parameters outside of your GPS data that could help um, provide you more information. So for us, it was um, like there was a time where I did some saliva analysis to look at their immunity and stress levels. Um, and so combining the, the information I was gaining from GPS data and my saliva analysis, I was able to give an indication to the coaching staff uh, what the stress levels were like and throughout a season how that would go um, in different trends. Also, the amount of rest or recovery in between games. So depending on how your um, draw came out, you had to also think about the amount of recovery between big games um, against certain opposition. So that became another additional thing that I would plan towards. Um, and that was all uh, planned well in advance. So even though I would get a draw of 20 rounds beforehand, I would start mapping out uh, the types of recovery that we needed, but then combining my knowledge of not just GPS, but other things that we were collecting. So saliva analysis was a good one um, to help me with that. But then when other questionnaires uh, that the players used to do on their phones, that would give me another element of uh, subjective um, quantitative information that gave me uh, an indication of how players were handling the different stresses throughout a season. So from the start of my career with GPS, it yes, it was a lot more tedious because of the technology then, but as it improved, I was able to combine it more with other forms of technology to provide some more feedback to the coaching staff. And in that, you have to develop yourself and push yourself to... to um, 
to look for the information because there's I've seen for so many um, other organisations, it's one thing to have all this type of measurement tools and you just do it for the sake of measuring but not actually doing anything with the information is what's the main um, issue with some um, organisations. You have to actually do something with it. And I was always pushing myself to try and find answers. And, um, and if the team did well, what, what, what actually worked? Um, if the team didn't do well that season, trying to find the answers as to uh, where did we go wrong with all the data that I was collecting. So the coaches have their responsibility of finding that where they went wrong on the field with their skills, but then myself and I guess my colleagues in the high performance department would have to try and identify what we could have done wrong or how do we improve um, in our measuring tools uh, in the season going forward. I think it's really interesting, you know, you've, especially what you talked about with the saliva samples too and analysing stress and also you've got your GPS data there and you've got your your objective, you know, data on players' stress levels but also their, their output and their, their lo- the loads that are, you know, your, your training protocols are putting on your athletes and also, you know, ga- the games that they're um, participating in. You mentioned briefly there a bit about, you know, your subjective um, assessments can you talk to us a bit more about what sort of um, protocols you had in place during those years? With Was it wellness um, screening tools or was it a lot of, you know, um, rate of perceived exertion? Obviously, they're a lot more um, time efficient and less invasive, but maybe speaking to our listeners who have sort of less knowledge about the subjective side of things and how useful it can be these days in, in a sports setting. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so the wellness um, questionnaires came in when I was at the dogs with Des. So so we started working on those and, and so everyone would answer their questionnaire every morning. Um, when it came to doing their perceived exertion, that wasn't something that I, um, I did during my time, but I definitely see the benefit in it. Um, I feel like uh, there would have been some squads that if I did that, um, they would definitely use it to their advantage. So, and you just have to, uh, I guess, look at your squad and see what it's like. I think these days with the younger athletes coming through, um, you could definitely uh, find that very useful. But I do find like with some of my older footballers in the past, that they would definitely use it to their advantage to try and make changes to the schedule. And did you did you <laughs> think on that point? It's quite it's quite a funny. I would definitely. Like my, sorry, I, I, I sorry to interrupt there, Liz. I it's quite a funny concept, isn't it? Because you probably have those athletes who are, you know, would underrate and try and you know say that they're you know not the activity or the. Whatever you, whatever drill you're running or whatever test you're running, um, underrate to sort of you know try and push their boundaries as much as possible. Was there any athletes, or without naming names, that you sort of would either get to underrate, you know, how they're feeling, or you know, vice versa, sort of you know, say that they're not doing too well or they're 
Oh, no, you'd find that with every squad that you worked with and that that just made it even more important and significant for you to get to know your, your athletes and the players that you're working with. Um, and that was a skill, I guess, that I picked up from Donnie to read the athlete really well. Um, and I found that initially when I wasn't doing any type of subjective um, measurements, I would have to get to know the player and notice um, just through uh, their personality and how they would finish uh, a day or a session as to how to take that on and actually give some feedback to the coaching staff. And, and for some players, I could go up to them and ask them how they're feeling and, and get a good, honest feedback. But sometimes I just had to rely on my own instinct and knowing the player. But then towards um, my years at the dogs where I did actually do some subjective uh, analysis, I did know the players that would always rate themselves highly. And so I would have to do my own uh, scaling compared to what's normal for them compared to other um, players that wouldn't rate themselves so highly in their, in their scores and then try and work out what the norm was for each individual because, um, yeah, so it, it, it's not always going to be clean uh, data that you're going to get where everything's just going to come back and say, yes, that was a good session or no. You still have to interpret the data based on the player's norms and that's pretty much based on their personality as well. Right. And, you know, and with you said it's, uh, before as well about, um, you know, stress and, and managing that with the players, Um I believe you were um, involved as well in research around sleep um, at the dogs. I'm not sure if you're at Manly, um, but I guess I wanted to talk to you about that because it's a, a area I find fascinating, especially these days with more and more research coming out about um, the barriers to sleep in, in the current digital age and more specifically in, uh, in sport as well and how important it is for players to get um, sleep to maximise their performance on the field. So I guess you can just take us through um, some of the key research projects you're involved in there. Yeah, so um, I had an interest in uh, doing a sleep study at the dogs and I also, I guess I started this because uh, there was a sponsor that wanted to get involved with the team and so that... Uh, that, that started us just asking the question of the players, how were they sleeping? And um, we were lucky enough that with that particular sponsor, we were able to get, um, I guess, better products for them to help them sleep. Um, but then I then had to ask the question, okay, so uh, what is your sleeping arrangements like at home? Like, uh, do you have a good quality mattress and pillow as well as that? What time do you go to sleep? Are there any distractions? And how does this affect uh, your performance on the field? And then how early do you need to wake up to actually get to training? So I was finding out that some players had to get up very early to just drive to training. And so that was affecting their performance um, when they got to training. So this all raised a lot of questions and then um, that's where I discussed with Des, is there a way that I can do more in-depth studies? And so that's where I um, got in touch with the AIS and they lent me a few 
of their measure, measuring tools to measure some of the uh, sleep data of the players. And so that opened up a, like a different area for me to analyse for the players and give them some feedback and support. Um, but then it also allowed me to give some feedback to the coaching staff in the way that we were scheduling our training sessions and also what type of recovery we we're doing after games. Like, was it necessary to make the players wake up the next day really early and drive an hour and a half to get to a recovery session when really they needed to just get more hours sleep? Um, but then it also highlighted, okay, what else are these players doing after a game that is affecting their recovery? Um, so all of this just... I guess, improved our understanding of our current squad and helped us to develop protocols and and help them and support them in, in better ways of um, recovery uh, overall. Right. And and what were some of the, the main, I guess, alarming findings um, you discovered with um, players and the barriers to them getting good night's sleep um, and quality sleep and some of the ways you, um, I guess, solved these issues? Uh, Most of it was just making them recognise what what they were doing. So so finding out what time they were going to sleep and then how long it took them to fall asleep. Uh, Sometimes it would take them a, a good amount of time to fall asleep. And so just identifying how much time were they spending on the phone or um, on iPads or watching TV or playing video games, all of that was just um, brought to the surface as to, okay, no, we need an actual plan for leading into sleep. Um, And then also for the ones that had young families because at the Bulldogs during their time there, um, a lot of the, the players had young families or um, we're going into that life stage of having um, a new family around them. Um, okay, what, what were the uh, things that we needed to set in place to assist them? And so that meant that there was a session that we created for the families of our players to educate them about what uh, their partners required in the home environment and and that was a bit challenging because we didn't know if that would be taken on very well because uh, we didn't want them to feel like we were invading their uh, family environment and telling them uh, could you allow the player to go to sleep at a certain time but then neglect the responsibilities they have to their uh, children or family environment Um, but then it was more an opportunity to discuss with them and I guess help um, them help us as to how can we support our players um, in a more beneficial way. And that in, that in itself actually helped um, the families to understand the needs of the athlete, but then for us to understand the needs of the families as to what they needed to, um, to get from um, the footy players while they were at home. So all of this just was more information that assisted us to uh, develop our own programs. Um, But no, overall, it was just education about sleep, 
and understanding um, all the different environments that were impacting performance. I think it's, you know, you've showed there that you're able to implement, um, you know, some form of intervention after you've gained the, you know, the data from the players as well, which is, you know, obviously a really um, effective thing, but also, you know, shows that you're, what, what you've, what intervention you've put, well, I guess what data you've extracted from your players, um, how effective your education to them has been. If we look at things like activity monitors these days, I guess there's a lot of technology around things like Apple Watches, uh, Fitbits. I think there's also been a lot of research around um, the, Phillip, the Philips Respironics. Um, but a lot of these activity monitors will actually track your sleep quality. Um, have you ever used these? Like how much do you value this technology? Um, and if you have used it, is there any disadvantages um, you see or any glitches with this type of software or any issues with it? And is there any um, benefits to it? I guess it's not invasive, but is there anything that you can sort of explain from your experience? Mm. So I have worked with a number of different other measuring tools when it comes to sleep. So with the Wallabies, we had fatigue science involved, which is probably the top end of your measuring uh, tools. And they're based in Canada and it's based on 20 years worth of military research. So being able to use that particular tool and then compare it to the other wearables that are available now to um, general population, it's interesting to see what the accuracy is like. Um, and more recently, I've worked on a program where people were using the Aura Ring, which is quite popular these days, and looking at the accuracy there. So there is some... Um, I guess challenges because uh, that is only based on activity and movement uh, and unless you're having something hooked up to your head uh, and measuring the brain waves or having something a lot more invasive happening to you to measure your sleep, um, it can be very uh confusing for people to use the other types of wearables like your Apple Watch, your Aura Ring, because you could be lying in bed, still awake, but having no movement and actually it recognises that you're asleep. And then the other side to it is that other some people, particularly men, tend to um, have uh, like body movements, like just reactions. So they will um, have a little flinch every now and then and then the wearable will recognise that as you moving around when actually you're still asleep. It's just your body does still move when you're asleep. Um, and so that can uh, give inaccurate information. So there's two sides of where inaccuracies can happen with these wearables and it's just identifying them and allowing the uh, person to know that this can happen, but actually still collecting the sleep data is really useful because it allows you to just recognise what you need to work on. Um, so it, if it means uh, finding a better process of uh, getting to sleep 
which is what most people have um, challenges with, that's still uh, being, you could still work on that through sleep hygiene. And then if you can identify that you actually do have something more serious with your sleep, like sleep apnea, these types of wearables will be able to highlight for you um, that there's something more serious wrong. And so that's where you have to go um, into a sleep lab and get more assistance that way. So even though there is inaccuracies, I still believe that uh, they're still very useful in providing some information to general cops. You're listening to Normalist, a podcast hosted by Hayden Kelly and Jack Hasler. In order to stay up to date with the latest news about the podcast, please follow us at Normalist Podcast across all social media platforms. What sort of um, improvements did you see? I know you were doing the saliva samples um, as a measure of their stress levels. Did you see any like market marketable um, sort of improvements that like from before you in, intervened with regards to their, you know, the sleep studies that you were um, sort of involved in before that and then after that? How did the saliva samples maybe change and what sort of data did, were you able to retrieve from this? Uh, I, I always um, give a, an example of state of origin time. Um, so we would run our saliva samples throughout the whole squad as well as our state of origin players. Um, and we would find that the stress levels would go up of all our squad uh, during that time that players would go away for state of origin. But then back then all the focus was on the state of origin players um, because the focus was because they were doing so much more volume and those games that they were playing were at grand final level. Um, so the hits were a lot uh, stronger. The the game was a lot faster. The intensity was just a lot greater. So all of the focus was on these state of origin players. And when they came back from camp, you know, they would be given extra rest and, and be catered for because of that. But then what I realised through the saliva levels that every player that had to play out of their position or replace someone that had gone away, their stress levels were also heightened. And then the whole team was also at a heightened stress level because they had to perform without these existing players that were in the state of origin team. So when I made these findings and presented them to uh, Des and the coaching team that uh, that there was so much focus on these players going away, but not the rest of the team. Um, that's where we implemented other things about catering for the stress levels of the rest of the team when these players were away. So if that meant extra recovery or, or um, additional support for the players uh, stepping up to take over from the players that had exited for state of origin, um, it actually improved the way we handled that situation. Um, so 
I think one year we didn't do it that well and then I provided that feedback and the following year we implemented a few different things for those players and that squad and um, we actually performed well throughout that state of origin period and therefore led to better uh, performance leading into the final series. And I think it's really, it's actually quite really interesting there that you've you brought up the, the idea of, um, you know, performance related to sleep. I guess it's, you know, you, you would expect that given the amount of knowledge we have these days on the importance of sleep. Um, just some research here from um, Shana Holson in 2014. Uh, she was looking at, you know, restricting sleep for less than six hours for more than four consecutive um, nights and the effects this actually has on on the body in a physiological sense. So there's things like increased inflammation, um, reduced ability to metabolize glucose and carbohydrates that are in the blood, um, you know, when food's broken down. And then also things like learning. Um, and this was, this was all caused by, you know, prolonged deprivation in sleep. Um, now, I think one of the things that she primarily looked at was how dietary interventions actually assisted with with sleep was there anything in terms of you know working with athletes was there any strategies besides what we've just spoken about in terms of you know reducing um, exposure to you know tablets and iphones and computers before bed and you know working on your sleep hygiene was there any um, other strategies with regard to nutrition that you may be sort of looked at a lot with your athletes? There's always the caffeine intake and how that influences each individual. Um, so part of my, my Masters of Human Nutrition, I did a study at the Bulldogs where I measured um, every player's caffeine intake um, and what time it was and also the different products they were having throughout the day. Um, and so they were unaware that some products actually had caffeine and, and they were having it after, you know, 3 p.m. So that was affecting their sleep or the quantity of caffeine that they were having. Uh, and so all of that has now just become part of education for every athlete that I work with when it comes to sleep, um, just looking at what caffeine does to them. And it affects every individual in a different way but then also identifying the different products that actually have caffeine in them. Um, the other thing was probably during my wallaby time, traveling with them, sleep was a massive uh, task for me because we obviously had jet lag to deal with. And so I did have to uh, work around anything to do with nutrition. Um, so we would plan our meals to make sure that they did have a certain amount of carbs at night to assist them with sleep. Um, but then we brought in a supplement of, um, that had, uh, that would produce melatonin. Um, so we had tart cherry juice provided to them, um, everywhere we went to bring on melatonin to help them sleep. But other than that, it was just more about education, not so much about nutrition. Yep. Um, and then just educating the players as to what will affect their sleep according to what they're taking. And what did you, what did you find as well? Um, you know, we see a lot of issues that 
exists between you know the sports and nutrition relationship and you know how it's kind of like a, a, a curve on a graph the more intense the sport the more um you know specific and unique the diet for the athlete has to be you know um, barriers such as eating disorders and um, alcohol consumption how was um, your experience of like dealing with that even if, if you had nutritional deficits yeah. as well mm. so all of that has been um, evolved throughout my career so i find um, earlier in my career um, alcohol consumption was probably higher or more acceptable um, whereas these days you don't see it as often that players are drinking um, as much like during the week or anything like that. Um, whereas like if you speak to your older age uh, uh, footy players, you know, it was quite normal for them to still have a beer um, during a training week, whereas these days you just don't hear of that at all. Um, but uh, when it comes to nutrition these days, the younger athletes, this new generation of athletes take it a lot more seriously um, about what their food intake is or what particular diet they're following. Um, and in some ways it's great because you don't have to sit there and convince them about um, eating a good diet, but then there's the other side of it where they take it too seriously and are too restrictive and then they're too lean and not having enough energy to perform well. So it's having that happy medium of what's required as an athlete to perform well, but then providing them with enough education as to what is uh, acceptable for their level of um, activity that they require a certain amount of food in their diet. Um, and then if they are being restrictive or if they choose to go on a particular type of diet, like a keto diet or anything like that, um, knowing, uh, okay, what, if you're going to go down that road, what, uh, what do you need to know, uh, for your own athletic ability to achieve while being on that type of diet? So I have worked with people with um, players that are either vegetarian, vegan, or um, go on a keto diet. And then we have to try and, uh, I guess, educate them as to, okay, we could probably follow this, but it can affect you in a performance way in this, uh, in this way. But then how can we try and minimize these types of risks um, and, some people might be thinking, oh, don't you just tell them what to eat and they just do what they're told. Uh, at, at certain levels, you you can't do that. So like some of the examples that I've just described were elite athletes in a Wallaby squad and uh, they've been playing for multiple years at that high level. Uh, I'm not about to come in and say, no, this diet is not, going to work for you when they've been managing it for 10 years prior. Um, and it's just trying to uh, provide them with em enough support and provide them with all the food that they require to perform well. So I guess you sort of look at their current situation and just assess, you know, well, how do we get the best out of them with what food is available to them and like what they actually can eat with what diet they're adhering to. Um, mm -hmm. 
It's a really, really interesting um, topic, I guess, because it's more of a, like when you have people who are vegetarian or vegan, often it's for a lot of different reasons too. When Have you ever had people come into a team who are, have special like diets and maybe amongst the group, it's sort of, you know, become more of a, like for lack of a better word, like a cult, you know, they sort of take on those nutritional habits and then you sort of get maybe a bit concerned about what's happening in the greater cohort as opposed to just the individual and trying to manage their their diet and their performance? Mm. I have only, I've only had like small trends of things like that happen. So let's say a diet becomes popular in mainstream population and so the uh, a player might come in and say, oh, I want to try this. And it's up to me to educate them as to how it's, it may not work for them as a professional athlete, but even so they'll still want to try it. Um, and so uh, supporting them during their time that they are trialing it, but then also you're, you also have to um, use your intuition and, and if it's not the right timing, you've got to just say it. Like I know that if it, if it's, at an international level, like the Wallabies, you you got to take a stand and say that's not the right time to actually be trialing a diet. Whereas um, pre-season may be a better option to be trialing diets. And so I would find that um, during the time paleo became popular, um, that became something that uh, a lot of team members wanted to try. And then you would support them and provide them the information. But then um, when you saw a, a dip in their performance, you straight away had to say, no, this is not working. Um, and then if I needed support by coaching staff, that's when I would approach them and say, uh, there is a dip in performance. I think it's because of this reason. And then we would then um, help the athlete to make a decision that was more based on their performance, not on an interest in a particular diet. Yeah, and it's fascinating. But I think what you alluded to there is, you know, pre-season uh, might be a better time to try things like that or different times of the year. In that sort of same stream of thought, I want to sort of move into the concept of, um, you know, how you periodize a training year. Often with rugby league athletes, it can be quite different to a lot of other sports or other athletes in different, um, you know, sporting arenas. Firstly, can maybe explain to the listeners, you know, how that, that process of planning occurs and the communication between yourself and the SNC and the coach and um, you know what what makes up the training year specifically in a rugby league sort of setting mm, I guess setting training blocks and then making sure that there's enough recovery is probably my main focus whenever I'm going into a periodization um, with rugby league, like you're very fortunate that you get the first 20 rounds and the league to a season is very structured. So you have four to six weeks prior to Christmas, um, four to six weeks prior to the trials, 
And then post-trials, you get maybe one or two weeks off and then the season starts. So it is very structured. So you can do um, uh, training blocks of where you want to achieve certain things uh, and then making sure that you have adequate recovery, uh, not just physically, but also mentally for your athletes. Uh, and then within the season, creating the same type of thing. So identifying where the training blocks might be uh, dependent on the, I guess, the draw. So you're going to get uh, certain draws where you have a lot of short turnarounds, long turnarounds, um, identifying where you can give players an extended break uh, and then also identifying the tough times of the season. And that will change because you, you initially identify the tough times in the season maybe based on the opposition that you're playing, but then once there's a number of uh, injuries in the team, your tough times become every week because uh, if you're missing a few players or there's a change of dynamic within the team, um, every, every week becomes a challenge. But then it's just identifying when are the weeks that you're going to be able to give them a break uh, and getting the most out of them during the times that you do have an extended time to put some good training in them or if it is uh, working on footy skills, uh, allowing the coaches to do their job without having too much of an influence from your uh, high-performance team when trying to work on certain physical type of goals that you want to achieve within the season. And, you know, on that with you know, the importance of also recovery, as we've mentioned before, um, you know, the knowledge on uh, managing the recovery of athletes uh, has increased, um, but the injuries seem to be, uh, remain at a high level, and that may be down to the speed of the game and the physicality of the game, um, you know, increasing and the sport in general. But I wanted to get your um, you know perspective on why this um, you know, correlation um, is occurring with the even though knowledge is increasing and technology is improving, why injuries still um, is remaining at a relatively high level? Mm. I think definitely the speed of the game uh, is a factor, but then we also need to look at the development of the athlete. Are we still developing our athletes and training them at our junior years in the same capabilities that we were doing 10 years ago? Whereas like uh, we may look at some of our old school strength and conditioners as being too um, old school and, and, and not focusing on newer, newer principles, but then it's probably their skills that have, have actually created um, the strength principles of our older athletes that were not getting injured as much as what they are today. So you do need to look at the whole paradigm of the athlete and their development. So uh, when they started working in the gym, were they taught in the correct manner? What type of, um, what's their training age? Like how much have they actually done uh, leading into where they are now? So you might find that there might be younger 
uh, NRL plays starting out at a younger age and so they've got more years under their belt, but then that's not necessarily a good thing either because that means that uh, they're going to reach uh, the volume of a of a NRL player that at a much younger age compared to what uh, older players or previous generations um, have not experienced. So it's a multiple of things that uh, you have to consider when it comes to injuries, especially the high injury rate that is happening now. But yeah, like I guess in summary, um, I would just say the speed of the game is definitely one thing, but also the development of the athletes, how they've trained, but also their training years. So we've just got a, a lot more younger players starting off uh, younger than what they were in previous generations. Yeah, and you know, and you've come full circle now, um, and your current position at UTS Research and mentoring the next generation of you know, sports scientists and. Know, as as the quote goes, you know, in learning you will teach, and then in teaching you will learn. What's that been like for you? Um, I guess giving back and um, guiding that next generation um, of sports scientists and and health scientists in Australia. Uh, it's a totally new experience for me because I have to. I, I feel like I, I've still got a lot to learn as a as a teacher and as a, um, I guess, academic at UTS. Um, so I'm still learning from the people that I work with um, as to the correct uh, methods to communicate, I guess, what I want to project to the students. But then when it comes to providing them practical experience and guidance, I feel like um, I'm really enjoying the experience because uh, I feel that students are getting a lot out of uh, the examples and the advice that I'm giving them. Uh, but then I still feel like I can I, I can develop more in this role that I currently have. What what lies ahead for you? I know that obviously we just spoken about your great work that you're doing, you know, at UTS helping build the next, you know, frontier for lack of a better word, um, of, you know, people coming into this industry. Um, what lies ahead for you and what's what's on the agenda for Liz moving forward? Uh, I guess for me, I really want to, I guess, do really well at my role at UTS. Uh, I see it as a an exciting opportunity for me to... Um, to develop as a practitioner that's able to give back to new age sports scientists, but then still have my connection with the sporting industry. Um, I, one of the challenges of our industry is that there isn't security um, in our role. So you go from contract to contract, and even if you have a contract in our industry, none of that's secure. So you might sign a, a three-year contract, but that doesn't mean that you have a job for three years. Whereas going into the university, um, I have opportunities to have more job security. And so that's probably been one of a focus for me in the most recent years is to 
find a job where I do have a bit more security. And then um, there's also life balance as well. And that's something I guess throughout my career, um, I, I did spend a lot of time just focusing on uh, developing my career and, and the successes that I've had throughout my career, but then I haven't had the opportunity to actually have a family or anything like that. Whereas the opportunity that I have with UTS, I can now um, have a family, which I, which I now will be having and still have job security. Um, so in that way, there is that disadvantage with females in the industry is that you have to try and work out if you can do that within your role. Um, I always feel that if I was working with Des, that he would always accommodate that. So even if I was working in sport and still working for Des, I do think I would still be able to do that. But um, just the way I guess my career has panned out, this opportunity at UTS is now available to me. And I just really want to do a great job there, but then also focus on other areas in my life. Uh, and then hopefully at some point I still want to be connected to sport. I still want to be able to uh, work with short-term contracts that do appear every now and then um, in sport and help uh, my colleagues out. So, And so I, I try and still maintain my connections to everyone that I've worked with in within the industry. So they're probably my main things that I'm focusing on um, in the next couple of years yeah I think it gives a great insight you know because we see all the footballers on tv and we watch all the finals we see the tries and all that sort of thing but we don't see all the hard work that goes behind the scenes to get the teams to where they where they are and it's you know it's the pointy end of the season at the moment we've got all the preliminary finals coming up in the grand finals so um yeah I guess exciting times for all the footballers out there but exciting times for yourself you know starting a family and working now with the next generation so you're going to have your your influence but um yeah just want to say a big thank you liz for coming on today and um it's been a great chat no thank you I, i've loved sharing um these experiences as there's not many opportunities where you get to uh uh i guess share what you've learned in your career and hopefully it helps other professionals out there Thanks for listening to this episode of Normus with Liz Marin. Be sure to check out the previous episode where we spoke with Dr. David Misrahi about his career in exercise oncology and his achievements including a PhD in the same field. In the next episode of Normus, we chat to Ben Woods, who spoke to us about his spectacular journey around the whole of Australia on a bicycle, raising money for his brother Jace, who unfortunately lost his battle with depression. Ben broke a Guinness World Record in the process and he told us about some of the amazing experiences he had in his journey. Normless is recorded out of Sydney, Australia. Episodes are written, produced, hosted, and edited by myself, Jack Hasler, and Hayden Kelly. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Normless Podcast, so you can stay up to date with episode releases and content. And if you only have a little bit of spare time right now, that's okay check out the Normalous YouTube channel for episode highlights. If you or anyone you know has a story that would be perfect for the podcast, please reach out to us through 
normalistpodcast at gmail.com.